This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. This is the second part of our two-part series on financial wellness. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, I recommend going back and listening to that episode first, since this is a continuation of my conversation with my dear friend, Ravi Ramanathan, and our Financial Wellness Minute host, Matthew Kerbis. This episode, we cover refinancing student loans, demystifying how to save for retirement, and whether I have too many subscriptions. Spoiler alert, yes, I do. That is really difficult. You know, that actually brings up something that I wanted to kind of ask both of you, because we've we sort of skirted around this issue a little bit, but I think I just want to bring it up because it's something that I've struggled with myself, and that is this saving as much as everybody says that you should, right? You know, they say that you should actually have an emergency fund of what, like at least six months of expenses. That is bonkers. Like, who actually has that? And I'm a little bit afraid to ask that on this episode because, <laughs> Ruby, okay, maybe you do, right? Like, I don't. Okay, fine, fine. I'm really happy for you. But I don't. <laughs> and it's really hard to save up for that, to save up for, you know, unexpected health costs, you know, to put money in an HSA, which is a health savings account, you know, if you have that option at work. It's just, it's so hard to, you know, to save for retirement, to save for a down payment. How is it possible to save for all these things? Do I just have to forego all of my discretionary spending on entertainment? Like, is that really the only option? Because it kind of sounds like that's probably what both of you did at various times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Although, to be fair, like, you you should look at, like, the Babo example is like a one-off experience, right? So do those as infrequently as possible. Like you don't want to live a completely austere life, right? But at the same time, when you invest in entertainment or discretionary spending, like what are you spending your money on? Is it an experience that you can repeat that you could drive more value, right? Like like if you hit the slopes every day sort of a thing, like you're living in Colorado, Sonia, right? Like if you invest in a monthly pass or a yearly pass, you know, maybe you do if you're hitting the slopes every day. But like we talk about on the Financial Wellness Minute, tracking what you spend and what you earn, well, maybe you should track you know, add an extra tab in your spreadsheet. How many times you actually hit the slopes? Maybe you're not deriving a lot of value, you know, from like a, a monthly or annual pass for something, right? Don't take my icon pass from me, man. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I calculated how many times I had to go skiing last season to more than break even. And I did. And that's in part because mountains and, and resorts in Colorado are like insanely, it's, it's like $120 for like a full day lift ticket. So if you get a ski pass and I went nine times, I mean, I'm more than... So don't take my ski pass from me, man. <laughs> I, I, I won't, but how about this? How about this? So, you know, how many subscriptions do we have? Like Amazon Prime, uh, you know, Netflix, you know, like all these subscriptions. Like they keep a history of, of what you watch and when you watched it. Go look at that. Like you don't have to keep a log because they keep a log for you and see, am I actually watching Netflix? Am I actually, you know, watching Hulu? And if you're not as much as the other ones, maybe it's time to cut a subscription out of your service. And like with Amazon Prime, there's so many potential savings there. Like as a new parent, I have a baby. And in the the first year of the kid's life, you get a 20% discount on diapers if you're an Amazon Prime member. And if you do subscribe and save on diapers, you get an extra 20% on top of that, right? So like there are so many savings opportunities with Amazon Prime. They've got me. (laughs) And when my kid's old enough, I'm sure Disney Plus is going to have me because, you know, Disney and and the kids, right? 
So I probably will always have to pay for those, right? But do I need Netflix? Do I need Hulu? Do I need HBO? HBO is a maybe because they also have Sesame Street, so I could rationalize that with the kid, right? <laughs> but I probably don't need those other subscriptions. And I'm not, I don't watch a lot of sports, so ESPN Plus, I don't need it, you know? So those are questions, you know, you know, we all have to ask ourselves as far as the entertainment and discretionary spending is concerned. You know, only spend, you know, what you're actually using. And if it doesn't track it for you, track it yourself. And then the other side of that is, is invest in entertainment that has repeat use. So like, you know, video games is one of the large, if, if not the largest, you know, in terms of annual revenue entertainment space, I think it passed gambling in the last few years. So more people spend money on video games than any other form of entertainment. And then there's repeat value there. You don't, you buy like a Nintendo Switch Lite, it'll cost you 200 bucks. You buy a couple of games that are on sale, you know, for 20 or 30 bucks. And that's, you know, months of entertainment potentially, you know, when you need to chill out and have some downtime. So there are affordable repeat ways to get that entertainment discretionary spending where you don't have to go and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars a year to get that. So what yeah. I'm hearing you say, Matthew, sorry, Ravi, is that I have permission to get a Nintendo Switch. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you stop spending money on other entertainment and discretionary things, right? Oh, it's a balance. Oh, oh, come on, man. <laughs> That's a lot. Sorry, Ravi, what were yeah, you as, as an avid Zelda fan, I appreciate this message. Um, but... <laughs> The, uh, I mean, there's a reason companies are, are shifting to subscription models wherever they can, right? And they get more revenue that way, and, and we all kind of get locked in. For me, I, I 100% agree with what Matthew just said. And, you know, one thing that helped, I think, was I realized that with a lot of these subscriptions, you know, two-player mode kind of helps. So if you have a roommate, and, and now that I'm married, we share you know certain family plans, and that saves us some money for some of this stuff. But yeah, sorry, Sonia. <laughs> I know, I know, I know Ravi has heard me say this many times. It is some of us are single out there, and some of us are paying for all of our stuff ourselves. But I support you and Matt being on a family plan together. Yeah, it does save a lot of money. And, uh, you know, as you look out and we do our budget together actually because it's um you know we're in it together and you know we both like different things and so sometimes there's compromise that comes with that but the you know point is it, it really does having that honest conversation doing exactly what matthew just said which is looking at these subscriptions and saying do we really watch hulu anymore i mean hamia's hill's great is it, you know, is that the only thing we're watching? Do we need to keep this? You know, having, you know, an honest discussion about that. And don't get me wrong, you can't live an austere life, right? It's it's hard not to be part of particularly the streaming world. But, you know, well, we don't have to be members of everything. Uh, and it does drive me a little crazy that instead of just subscribing to Netflix now, you know, every media company now has their own streaming service that if you want certain content, you have to subscribe to, uh, which is tough because it feels like we're going right back to cable again, but, or actually it's worse than cable. It's like you're subscribing to every channel individually, which, sorry, that's an mm -hmm. unrelated rant. But the point is, you know, having that hard discussion is important, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm hearing you both loud and clear. I, I think, and, and, you know, maybe our listeners are too, that it's all, Sometimes you have to have like just just kind of tough conversations with yourself or, you know, with your partner, if you have one about what you actually like do truly need and what you can get 
and what you can get rid of and that there is some, I guess, you know, is it fair to say that there is discipline involved? There is discipline and there is a little bit of missing out, right? Like in order to be in a better position in the future. Yeah. And the the missing out is a very real uh, feeling, I think. And it's just a hard conversation. And, you know, again, going back to what we were saying before, you know, having being honest about this stuff, and I think more public about it is important, right? You don't have to subscribe to Peacock or you know, Paramount Plus and all of them, right? And, and even there's some people who, believe it or not, don't subscribe to Netflix too. And it's okay. Like, <laughs> we will live. It, you have to, I mean, everybody has I won't has live, to- Ravi. I won't live. <laughs> 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 and, and it's it's just hard, right? And everybody has to. And it's such an individual question, for sure, right? I can't say you know specifically what I do or works for other folks, right? It's it's totally you know up to people's individual situations to assess what their their costs are and what the, where they want to put their money. Unfortunately, yeah, no, I and and I think that's right, and I think that's worth emphasizing for everything we've talked about. It's all got to be dependent on what everybody's own priorities are, what their situations are. But, you know, I think a lot of what we've talked about is pretty generally applicable, you know, just in terms of of how people prioritize things. And, and that's going to change per person. But it's important to kind of apply some of these general principles. So, you know, in line with that, Ravi, you mentioned something earlier on that I just want to circle back to because I, I think it's related to another thing we talked about. So you talked about how you refinanced your student loans, which which essentially basically repackaged them. Now, that is not something, honestly, that I'm familiar with. I didn't do it myself when I had student loans. And the reason I mention it now is because I think, too, we, you know, we were talking about credit card debt, for example. And so if folks get themselves into a situation where they have too much credit card debt, but then they've also got student loans and they've got to figure something out, and start paying something down. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to refinance your student loans? Because I had never heard of that before we started talking about it. Yeah. So, and and before I dive into this, I would note that everybody's situation is different and there are real risks that come with refinancing any kind of debt. And so before anybody does that, they have to assess their situation to determine whether it's right for them. For me, you know, with my student loans, I had a, a number of loans with a pretty high interest rate. And I was able to, because my income was pretty steady for a while, uh, go to a student loan company uh, or a refinancing company um, and apply for essentially a refinancing. Um, so what they do is they basically buy your debt and then lend you money to pay off you know, your, your student loans. But now you owe them that debt at a different interest rate, which is ideally lower than, well, it should be lower than what you were originally paying. Now, there are downsides to that, right? Instead of owing money to the government, you now owe money to a private company or a bank. Um, like SoFi is a, a good example of a company that does refinancing of student loan debt. Uh, a few banks do also. And you know, student loans do come with a lot of protections. They have a lot of programs that can adjust 
um, how you pay for them, depending on your income. When you refinance, you don't have that flexibility anymore. What you do get potentially is a lower interest rate. And for me, because I was going to be in private practice for a few years and I knew that, it made sense for me to, to do that because I had some certainty. I knew what my salary was probably going to be. And it just didn't make sense to keep paying that high interest rate anymore. And because the economy was good and my credit score was good, I was able to get a pretty good interest rate when I did that refinancing. And that's not going to be true for everyone, right? It's, I was very, very, very lucky to be in that situation. And I would advise people that you can look into it and see what interest rate you would get you know, and what that package would look like and weigh the risks as to whether it's worth it to you. Uh, for a lot of people, it won't be. And for a lot of people's personal situations, it's it's a risky thing to do. Um, but for a lot of people, it makes sense. And it made sense for me. And it makes sense for uh, a lot of people in that situation. Um, and it did, in the long run, allow me to pay off my debt a lot more quickly because my interest rate was much lower. So, sorry, refinancing is of uh, debt is, is also just something that happens all the time. And... Uh, you know, with credit cards, you know, there's you know, versions of that where, you know, you can move a credit card balance. There are some credit cards that'll take, you know, balances from one card and then, you know, moving it to another credit card and you pay a lower rate. I had a friend who had a lot of credit card debt coming into law school and he was a member of a credit union and they helped him with some of that refinancing and helped him uh, work through his options on how to move his debt into repayment packages that and refinancings at slightly lower interest rates and, and help him pay it off. So, I mean, if you're in that situation and you are particularly right now where interest rates are very low, yeah, there are people you can talk to and, you know, reaching out and looking into your options, I, I would never discourage anybody from doing it. But ultimately, the decision to refinance any of your debt um, comes with pluses and minuses. We hope you're enjoying our conversation about financial wellness with Ravi Ramanathan and Matthew Kerbis. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. 
Welcome back, listeners. We now conclude our conversation with Ravi Ramanathan and Matthew Kerbis on financial wellness. And, and, and I, I did that calculus and decided to not refinance my student loans. And that was because in my experience, I had a, a relative who, um, it was very sad, but his, his spouse passed away and they had a lot of student loan debt. But when they passed away, since their student loan debt was all federal, it went away with them. So it was very sad, but he wasn't left in all this debt that he had to pay off that wasn't his. If you refinance and you're you're married, I believe it becomes like a marital debt, you know, depending on the refinancing package and and all that. So there are things to weigh there. And, and since at the time I was considering, I was just looking into the rates being so low and being able to save a lot of money since I was very aggressively paying it off. But then I thought I would save some money. I'm just going to look at that as like insurance on if anything were to happen to me, my spouse wouldn't be responsible for that debt. So it was like that extra amount I would end up spending in the long run is like insurance on all the benefits you get from being having it all all your debt, your student loan debt being federal. And then the pandemic happened and the zero percent interest and forbearance happened. And I got that full benefit because I didn't refinance. So I got very lucky that I didn't refinance. Yeah. If I I Sorry, if I had refinanced Matthew right before the forbearance, I would have been very, very upset. (laughs) It's so good (laughs) for you. Yes, yes. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up, Matthew. I think that's a really good example. Both you and Ravi, that's a really good example of how you both thought through this issue of how, how or do I want to refinance my debt and what are some different things that, that I should be thinking about? And, you know, I'll throw my own like, so this wasn't with my my student loan debt. But a couple of years ago, I had to buy a car because my beloved car, Margaret, uh, was totaled in a, (laughs) was, was totaled in a car accident. I had to get, I had to get a new car and I had to take out a loan for that car because I didn't have, you know, that money cash to pay for it. And one of my friends was like, oh yeah, because I had gotten like that interest rate on that loan was bonkers considering that my credit score is pretty good. It was really, really high and it still is really, really high. And so my friend was like, no, like you should just refinance through a credit union later. You're going to get a a lower interest rate and it'll be fine. And I was like, oh, okay. So by the time I finally got around to actually doing that a couple of years, this was a few months ago, a couple of years later, it turns out that, and I knew this, but I really like wasn't thinking about it. So the only reason I bring this up is for folks to know if you're about to go through a mortgage application process or something like that, do not do what I did. Do not try to refinance something because when you apply for that, the financial institution is going to do what's called like a hard credit check. They're going to do an, an inquiry. It drops your credit score way more than than I thought it was going to. And, and it's fine for me because it's not like I was trying to do anything at that moment in time. But you want to make sure you get the timing right on that too, that you're not going to like artificially basically drop your credit score right before you need to apply for credit. Is, is anything I'm saying making sense? To yes. Folks? Y- yes, yes. If, if you can, <laughs> if you can wait before buying a home, when when you're planning to buy a home, if if the timing works out for you, wait two years from your last credit check because then because they stay on two for, years. It's it's they stay on for two years your credit checks and and oh my and, god. And, and depending on, you know, if you've never missed a payment, like all these other factors that go into your credit score, it might not be, it might not impact your score that much. Like I just bought a home. They had to actually, because of the timing, we put it an offer in January on a home and then we ended up losing that and we didn't actually close on a home until June. So we were sh- home shopping for, it was a crazy real estate market in, in 2021. 
But the, the moral of the story is they had to do two pulls of my credit checks because I did it so early on the first home. And then in order to close, they had to do a second one, right? So I actually got to see how much my credit dropped from the first to the second. And at least for me, it was on average only six points, right? So for some people, it may drop more depending on what your credit score is to begin with. But six points could be the difference depending on where you are from excellent credit to great credit or great credit to good credit. So you do have to be careful. And now I'm not, I hope our car, we just have the one car we were downtown. I hope it lasts for another two years before I have to get a lot, you know, because now I have two checks on my credit and, in, in, you know, within a few months, I have to wait two years before those go away, right? So definitely something to be focused on. That's a great point for our listeners, Sonia. Yeah, yeah. And I and I wish I'd known that even now when you just said, I didn't know it was going to be two years, but I really wish I had thought more carefully about that because I ended up not actually refinancing my loan through the the local credit union here. I ended up deciding not to do it. And so it was basically, it's a completely unforced error. And it's, now you're saying I'm stuck with that for like two years. So that's, that's just great. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I, you know, I think maybe the kind of the last main topic I want to get into is is retirement. And we've talked about that. But, you know, I know that a lot of folks don't even know where to start because it is very confusing. I was very lucky that my mom helped me kind of learn a lot about you know, different options and what to do. And she's super knowledgeable about that. But so many folks don't have someone like that in their lives to help them figure that out. So, you know, and, and Ravi, I'll start with you. But for folks that don't even know where to start, with retirement, and especially if their jobs do not include access to a 401k or some other kind of individual retirement account, which is also known as an, as an IRA, for someone who literally has no idea what to do, what's the first step? Yeah, well, I mean, the first step is to check to see if your company has a 401k, which uh, a lot of people don't take advantage of, even if it's there. And you know, this is not—it's not as common in our profession for firms or, or companies to do uh, a match to your contributions to your retire- 401k retirement account. But if, if you're lucky enough to work for an organization that does match your contribution, that is the first place to start because um, that's money on the table for you to add to a retirement account. And you know, for, for those of you who have no idea what a 401k is or what an IRA is or anything, I mean, it's so those are sort of your first type of retirement account. So a 401k is a company administered retirement account. Most of them traditionally are pre-tax accounts. So the money that you choose to contribute to a 401k and you're capped at, I believe the cap is uh, $19,500 per year at the moment, is all pre-tax. So what that effectively does is it reduces your taxable income for the year by the amount that you contribute into this fund. And then it stays there more or less, and you can't take it out without a penalty until you turn 65, at which point then that money is taxed based on the amount you take out every year um, and what your income is for that year. It's taxed as regular income. If your company does not have a 401k, you can open up an IRA, which operates very similarly and you can contribute, I believe the cap is $6,000 now per year to that account as a maximal amount every year. And it operates very similarly. That is deductible. So it reduces your taxable income. And uh, you can take out that money without a penalty and then pay 
the income tax on it, you know, when you turn 65. Now there's uh, another type of IRA called a Roth IRA. I won't go into that right now. That's post tax money that you contribute to it. Uh, so you, you pay taxes on it up front. And, uh, and when you contribute to that account, and then when you take it out, when you retire, you don't pay taxes on it. So that's a different type of retirement account. Now, all of this, you know, the IRA accounts, you can go to Vanguard or TD Bank's website and open up those accounts yourself. You don't need a company to do that for you. Um, and you can just set those up on your own if you want. So anybody can do that. And, and that's, those are sort of the traditional, you know, first step accounts. If you're looking to open a retirement account, participating in a 401k or similar version of that with your company, or, you know, having an IRA, either a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA is usually the, the way to go. Am I missing anything, guys? No, I think that was excellent. Yeah, I, I think that was a really good overview. And you're even like kind of, you're kind of helping me remember some bases because it turns out I I have both. I have I have a Roth IRA and I kind of forgot the difference between a Roth and a non until we just talked about it. But I have a Roth IRA and I have a rollover. I have a rollover 401k from my firm. It was portable and they, so, you know, so I, I rolled it over and I guess now I'm wondering out loud whether... That's not still pre-tax, right? It, it would be pre-tax if you rolled it over into a traditional IRA. So. Yeah, that's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So for, for those of you listening who for which all of that is gibberish, I would note that I didn't know anything about this when I graduated from law school. I had to sort of teach myself. And the ways that I did that was, I mean, the internet. As it turns out, Despite lawyers having, you know, a pretty steady income and like, for the most part, we are professionals and we, you know, have, uh, we're part of an industry that is pretty reliable. Most of us are good for our debts. And yet there are not very many financial wellness websites out there for lawyers. Um, there's the big law investor, which is pretty good. And I enjoy reading it, but obviously it's written with a very specific audience in mind. Um, a community that I used to be a part of and am no longer a part of and represents a very small sliver of the legal profession. You know, that being said, it has lots of useful information. And oddly enough, doctors have the best financial blogs. I don't know why, but there is the White Coat Investors, Physicians on Fire. There's a bunch of stuff. And doctors face a lot of similar problems to us. And you know, I would shout out the White Coat Investor in particular. There's a lot of the stuff we discussed today you can find, you know, much more detailed and probably much more informed stuff uh, on that website and in other places on the internet that can explain in English exactly what these accounts are and the types of things you should be thinking about before you put your money into any of them. So, yeah, we're, I think the three of us are, are somewhat amateurs here, but the good news is that other people have gone through this too. And there is information out there that you can look into. And to remind people that this is on Legal Talk Network and we are lawyers, I'm going to attempt an analogy here to try to, um, you know, emphasize what you just said about, you know, check your sources essentially, right? Like when you're citing to legal precedent, you're not just going to cite to one case that says, you know, that supports what your, uh, you know, what your argument is. You're going to find other cases out there that also support it. So in the same way you do your research and your legal briefs, if you're that kind of lawyer, 
do your research when you're making your financial decisions and don't just go to Vanguard. Don't just listen to this financial podcast or that financial podcast. You know, find multiple sources <laughs> that could help educate you to make whatever decision is right for you. And then probably talk to a financial advisor, probably. Yeah. So that's tricky too, because uh, sometimes financial advisors disagree and have their own incentives at times. So, And they're not all fiduciaries. So ask if they are fiduciary. And if they are, that's a good thing for you. Yeah, I am really glad that you brought that up, Matthew. That is super important. I think folks need to understand that there are different fee structures in place. There's different incentives in place. And and what Matthew just mentioned, not all of them are fiduciaries. And so you want to make sure that you understand that. I think, you know, in line with what Ravi just said, Matthew, I want to ask you, what are some resources that you've used? You know, because I know for me, and this is why I invited Ravi to be on this episode for me, it's my mom and Ravi, but we don't all have, (laughs) we don't all have, you know, my mom and Ravi. So what are some sources that you've relied on in trying to get some information to be more financially literate and well-informed? I tune in every month to Young Lawyer Rising through the very end, and I listened to the Financial Wellness Minute by Matthew Kerbis. In addition to that, I also have a family member or two that I go to, and not everyone has that, right? My own father is like um, financial industry tangential, uh, but again, my father-in-law uh, is sort of more tuned in, and now he's retired, and pretty much all he does is like not all he does, but he enjoys, you know, following the stock market, following the trends, looking at international trends. And like, so he's, that's what he's doing in his retirement. So he's able to, you know, help me and my spouse allocate our 401k investments, right? So that has been super helpful and not everyone has that. But Berkshire Hathaway, you know, read up on on the things they're publishing. You know, that's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's company. Um, that's another great source that you could go to and listen in. And there, there's like a whole like, kind of cult, not necessarily, not like, you know, literally cult, but there's like a cult following of like Berkshire Hathaway and like all these people, you know, talking about, you know, what they're doing and the the decisions being made. And so there's a lot of stuff out there. And and I guess it would, you know, just be do your research. You know, most of the people listening are probably going to be lawyers, not everyone, but, uh, you know, attorneys know how to do their research. So do your research. Well, you know, I think that's a great note to wrap up on. Ravi, thank you so much for for coming on the show with me and Matthew. And Matthew, thank you also for being on the show in a more expanded role this time. My pleasure. It was a pleasure, Sonia. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. 
Talking about money is not just difficult. It can be shameful for many of us. And it's even worse when you want to look like you can keep up with everyone else, even if you can't. I hope these episodes on financial wellness empowered you to both have the courage and honesty to take a hard look at your finances and where you can make some cuts, but also to be able to tell your friends, family, and partner when you can't go out to that dinner or take that vacation. FOMO is real, but ask yourself, what are you really missing out on? After all, you can't put a price on your financial wellness. Thank you to Ravi Ramanathan and Matthew Kerbis for joining me on these episodes. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be guest hosted by Matthew. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edit and mixed by Adam Lockwood. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.